Well, hello everyone and welcome to the New Ground Life and Leadership podcast. Take two, as we've just recorded five minutes and realized we weren't recording. Uh, I'm excited today to be joined by a new friend, Tongai Mahabeli from Zimbabwe. Um, we're going to be learning about life in Zimbabwe, um, leadership of the church, and uh, learning from his wisdom and insight uh, for us to learn from. Anyway, hi, Tongai, great to have you with us. Thank you, Jess. Thank you so much for having me and uh, looking forward to our conversation today. Great. Well, before we get going, why don't you just tell us a bit about yourself, your ministry experience today, your family situation? Sure. So, Tongai Maubel is my, is my name, as you said. I'm married to Joy, and we've got three wonderful boys, Joel, Shane, and Isaac. And I'm based in Harare, Zimbabwe, and uh, I do work with uh, Disciple Nations, Family of Churches, which has got a wonderful relationship with New Ground, and uh, Scott Marks and Tim. Uh, and we are in Zimbabwe, uh, Mozambique, Zambia, and a bit of Malawi. Uh, in addition to that, I am involved with Global Disciples, which has a vision to see everyone as an opportunity to choose and follow Jesus Christ. And I'm responsible for leadership development across the continent of Africa. So Africa is my home, Zimbabwe is my home. And really glad to be here. You're responsible for the leadership development across the continent of Africa. Yeah. As no small brief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's mainly working with church leaders and particularly those that are, are uh, targeting the least reached areas, areas that are close to the gospel in, in Africa. And that's just what I love to do as well. And do you, do you know what what percentage of unreached peoples there are in Africa or how many people's places that haven't heard the gospel or got no access to the gospel there are? Well, I know that it's between a third and two thirds who haven't heard the gospel in a way that they could choose or respond across the world. And so we really have a good, uh, big job to ensure that everyone receives the gospel and the good news about Jesus Christ across the world. And I guess a number of the the peoples and places that you'd be trying to travel to to share the gospel with aren't necessarily going to be easy to access. I would I, my my picture is that a lot of people living in tribes in places that are hard to reach or nomadic people that are often on the move. Um, is that part of the place that you work in Africa? Absolutely, and uh, those that are least resourced, and those that are difficult to reach out to, and those that may have different languages just just make it difficult for traditional min, uh, missionaries or churches to reach out to and um, and those also developing new areas in urban centers like slum cities and uh, slum areas uh, that are also becoming less traditional as well that are developing across the continent of Africa yeah um, so one of the I think I mentioned I mentioned earlier one of the reasons I'm looking forward to hearing from you is because um, you represent no pressure, but you are sitting here today as a representative of the majority of Christians, globally speaking. So there was some work done by the Pew Research Forum. So that in 1910, 82% of all Christians on the planet lived in what they describe as the global north, which is North America, Europe, Australia, Japan and New Zealand. Or 17% lived in the, what they call the global south. So the, the rest of the world, if you like. Whereas in 2010... They released the set, they did the same survey and discovered that the global north now is home to just 39 percent of all Christians on the planet, whereas the global south, part of the world that you're from, um, hosts 60 percent of all Christians globally. So you're sat here today as a representative of the majority of Christians on the planet. And so I'm really looking forward actually to sitting at your feet and learning from you about leadership and the church so um, we can be helped in the, the northern hemisphere or the, the global north. We mm. can be taught and equipped by you. And, you know, so you started touching on some of the, the challenges, no doubt, that you're facing in trying to disciple a vast part of the world, but a, a, a typically hard part of the world to reach either because of the infrastructure or because of the um, yeah, just the, the, the challenges of reaching people living in slum communities and establishing churches there. But before we get to that, just give our listeners uh, a sense of what life is like in Zimbabwe as different, perhaps, from life in the Western world. Yeah, I mean, life in, in Zimbabwe is very interesting, quite different from the Western world. 
think if you've looked at the history of Zimbabwe, you would know that um, Zimbabwe has faced difficulty economically and uh, that would mean for the ordinary Zimbabwean on the street, just getting by is difficult for power, for access to clean water, uh, good education, uh, good health care. And it just seems the, the government has struggled to be able to deliver those things as well as they would have liked. And so most people are trying to, to do what they can to, to survive. So, and employment is, is very high as well. So getting formal, unemployment is very high. So getting formal jobs is very difficult. You probably have a lot of informal activities that are happening that just helps people to get by. So you will find that Zimbabweans, we, 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 we just get on with life and try to make the most and try to create what, what's, what's possible. And that is difficult, but that also presents opportunities for the gospel where we can show the love of God through what we do in all those related activities. And I suppose, lastly, I would say it's, it's getting resource, financial resources for planting churches, doing the work of God, all those sort of things is always hard. And uh, running business, um, doing it well is always hard. So it's always just a place where you need to have faith in God. And you can't actually do it without God and without believing God, I would say. So you, you mentioned earlier about belief in God in Zimbabwe. Um, I think most people would be familiar with the, the idea of tribal religion, ancestor worship, whether that's the right term or not. The syncretism of different religious beliefs. And so getting, it's hard, you said it's hard to get by without God. What and yet I suppose it's not just God, the God of the Bible that people are looking to in a in a culture and situation like that where it's so it's so hard to survive. I imagine people are drawn to lots of different things. Are they? Talk to us a little bit about the the spiritual demographic of of the country that you're working in. Yeah. So with the context that I painted, you will find that lots of people are looking for a higher power and uh, trying to trust in. Uh, in, in, in God who's beyond their abilities. So the studies that you shared earlier where there are lots of conversions in Africa and people converting to Christ is true and very high. But uh, you also find lots of syncretism where people don't mind believing in Jesus Christ and also following African traditional religion or any other thing that might um, possibly help in terms of what they face, um, prosperity gospel, and uh, because it's a context where hope is lost and anything that can give hope beyond a person's ability is very attractive. So openness to the gospel, openness to God, but also open to other religions, the challenge that is faced. And uh, there can be high rates of Christianity, but also high rates of corruption, or things that are not of God that also exist in the same population. Yeah, so it's it's really to the challenge is really to to get us to believe in Jesus and Jesus alone um, is the biggest challenge that we face. Mm. Yeah. So talk to me a bit more about that because I think that's something that we would be aware of. So a conversation we had earlier, or I say something we'd be aware of. I think that would be something that that would resonate with people in the west as well that when life's hard uh, we pray and many people who aren't christians even in our country would would pray to whatever was out there look to anything to help them and if that prayer seems to get answered because they get what they want they think oh you must be god i'll trust you uh, so people in the west i think people are increasingly spiritual but it's not christian or organized religion as people understood it um Yes, so earlier on we were talking to someone who described um, being in Brazil where they got together and they rallied and the Christians prayed for 90 days solid uh, about the government, the situation in the country there and, and nothing shifted in the direction that they were praying. And so then in a, culture, in a context like that, it becomes very discouraging for Christians and they, they feel very defeated and they don't know what to do. Um, and I know in the past in, in Zimbabwe, there's been lots of prayer and lots of energy, efforts, faith poured out 
on endeavours to see prosperity develop, um, to see you know life expectancy increase. How do people respond when that doesn't happen? And then how do you help those Christians who feel like they're constantly being disappointed and so therefore constantly turning to other gods or other powers, other spirits, other than just the Holy Spirit to help them? What are some of the things that you as a pastor do to help navigate that? I don't know if any of that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good question. So, I mean, I would agree that there is a, a, a feeling of faith to say maybe... Some may say, does God really answer prayer? Does he really hear or does he really love us? Because maybe if he did, this suffering, which is real, would, would, uh, would change. I suppose it's to consistently know that we are here for a short uh, period of time. And God is above time. He's above our lifestyles, above what we know of. And his life, love never changes. He may allow us to go through difficult seasons, but he's, he's with us because he is building a kingdom that will last beyond what we see with our own physical eyes. And, um, and so it's just to continue to allow people to lift up their eyes to God and to know he remains God. And, um, and uh, he, knows, he knows better than us. And to really speak the word in truth, that. Being a Christian does not mean that all the problems will go away, but it does mean that at the end, and God is building a story about his own glory, and we're just part of that. And um, that helps. And also to pray uh, for God to continue to speak to the hearts of people. Sometimes when someone is very discouraged, it's only the Holy Spirit or the Comforter that can speak to someone's heart because there are so many complexities in what someone does really experience. And in addition to that, also to remind us that the, the, the macro environment may continue to be difficult, but God just intervenes in small places. I mean, as a person, I've known days where we're not so sure what next week is going to be like or a couple of days going to be like, but God intervenes. So God remains alive in the in this particular situations that we face and to, to, to continue to trust in him. And yeah. One of the things that really surprised me, I, I read um, Tim Keller's book, where is, I can't remember it's called now, Where is God in Pain and Suffering or Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. One of the things that surprised me is that he said that one of the reasons that Christianity triumphed in the ancient world was because they had a better explanation or a better hope for the problem of pain and suffering. And yet many people in the Western world use the existence of pain and suffering as a reason to not believe. I say use it as though it's a you know a get-out card. Like it, for, for many Westerners, it's a stumbling block to faith. It's interesting that for, Keller would say that in the Roman Empire and the pagan world of, of Jesus' day and that ancient world context, the alternatives to the alternatives to Christianity didn't offer any meaningful hope for, like you said, an eternal life or God to be building something beyond beyond the grave. So do you find that, how does Christianity in your context offer better or more substantial hope than the animism or spiritual, um, I, I don't know quite know how you describe the, the tribal religions of your culture. How does Christianity offer a better hope than the, than those? Yeah, I think the whole message of Christ, of love, of unity, of conquering the world or evil through doing good is a better message than any messages that exist out there. So in African traditional religion, there can be a lot of things that happen, including maybe um, uncertainty in the... In the in, ancestral worship and what they can say uncertainty what can they what they can pick up as problems uncertainty in how to resolve issues um and whole rituals that are involved that sometimes are difficult to make sense out of it but at the end of it all after having all done those there is no change in the circumstances that happen so even if you say christianity is not going to solve it there are no other options. And so, but the bigger options is just the love of Christ. 
the grace of God, unmerited favor, what Christ did upon that cross, that just caused a shift. Before you do anything, before you act as a believer, you qualify, before you do any rituals, before you pay anything, um, restitution, which is quite strong in African traditional religion, the message of Christ is that Christ has done it all and we receive the love of God. And so John 3.16, God so loved the Lord, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish. And then that's a guarantee of eternal life. So receiving the love of God, Christ dying on the cross, sorts the rest of our lives is a better message than any message that I've seen uh, in our context um, in many ways, yeah. Because uh, although although the context is different and people approach the problem differently, I think they in a, in a situation where I can imagine you don't have as much reliance on government services to solve the problem for you or technology to solve it for. I can imagine that we we turn to anything to help us, mm. and uh, historically human beings have turned to nature or turned to spirituality and the spirits to help them somehow. The the elemental spirits, the powers that are out there to do what we can to change our situation. But even in the West, we find that despite all the services being there and all the medicine being there and the latest technologies being there, being there, there are still and there will always be suffering and pain and heartbreak in the world that cannot be solved by sheer force of human will or human prayer. And so I hear what you're saying is in, in, that, in those situations where all of the incantations or all of the uh, rituals and routines that you go through or in our context where all of the medicines and all of the psychological understandings and drugs there's still going to be a time where you where you need something to help you and i hear what you're saying if i'm right is the love of christ shed abroad in the hearts of the human being is something that is able to give us strength in the face of obstacles that we can't conquer by ourselves absolutely and I suppose God in his own way or Jesus Christ is in his own way wants us to depend on him and probably not our minds on what we can resolve. And so we may have a context where in Africa when we are not in control because of that need to be independent and to put uh, lives in our own hands, we try to seek something that will validate that. I suppose in the Western world it could be through our own abilities or what the resources that we have to, because it will just cause us to be, uh, that it will be safer because you can control that. But at the end of the day, God is God and he is in control. In him we live and have our being. And that just remains. And I think if, you ha if we have that in our hearts, that we have our being and everything to God, the, we'll look at those challenges in a different way. We'll, we'll look at them in a way of faith to say, I may not be able to resolve this. I may not be able to even understand why I'm going through this, but I can trust God that is with me. And it just changes the way we live. I suppose in addition to that, you know, it's not just in the mind or psychologically, is that for sure God is alive. We can have a relationship with him. He speaks, he encourages through the gifts of the spirit. And um, that, relationship with Christ when we know who Christ is and when you know his voice the true God of the Bible um, it helps as we navigate through lives and that's just the message that's out there mm. Mm. so though you described a situation earlier where people have all their different you know things that they pray to to help them solve the problem um, I suppose you're saying is that your counsel as a pastor is there are certain things that will we will always have suffering and death in the world but Christ is able to give you the anchor of hope that nothing else can offer. So I'm interested, because growing up in the West, the air we breathe is so Christian. We can be under the illusion that everybody around the world outside of Christianity still has this as well. Um, so I was talking to someone recently who, who isn't a Christian, but was saying, oh, you know, the universal principles of love is there in everything. So my question is, the different types of religious backgrounds that people are from in Zimbabwe, um, what are some of the hallmarks of that type of religion and faith? Is it love, as people many suppose, like, or is that quite a Christian idea because of Christ? I'd just love to know some of your reflections and thoughts on that, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, I mean, what's, what's the difference? The, the major difference is that Jesus Christ's love is, is unmerited. 
And um, the Bible says he loved us whilst we were still sinners. And that is when he loved. So before we did anything, we received love. We are loved and then we, we, we move into that kind of love. I think what I see in terms of other, um, other uh, traditions is the opposite, where you have to qualify yourselves, where you have to appease. Uh, if you have to appease your ancestors, for example, in African traditional religion, that comes first. Um, or whether you have to perform first, if it's just living through your means and your wisdom, you first have to do stuff a certain way and then the reward will come. And that sort of thing. So that's just the opposite. That that love is condition is is conditional. You first have to do that, and then you get that love. So sometimes you question yourself whether it's love at all or it's a reward uh, that you have to do. So, but with Christ, you are loved. When you're still sinners, just the way I am right now, uh, I'm loved. So that's just a, a better message. That's so beautiful, isn't yeah. it? And when you when you put it like that, you realize just how magnificent it is. Yeah. We will suffer, we will die, but we are loved. Yeah. <laughs> and, and only in the West, because we feel powerful, and uh, so I think human nature we're insecure because we're we're aware of the, the looming presence of death around every corner, and because we feel so powerless in the face of that, we either tend towards well, we tend towards our own strength to resolve that we try to find some way of making ourselves feel powerful, feel strong, feel in control, and we turn to all different things to do that. But I love this reality that we're we're loved. We know the reality is we are powerless in the face of an enemy much greater than us, the enemy of death. But nevertheless we are loved and that love means that we're able to live with and put up with and walk through all manner of fiery trials and challenges. Um, that's really beautiful, isn't yeah. it? And also knowing that it's going to end. I mean, it's not going to be permanent and it's just there for a short time. Uh, I think when you are in it, it just looks like what you're going is going to go on and on and on and on. And if there's no God factor in it, it's just despair all along. But it's just for a certain season. And the love of God will conquer everything. God will conquer everything, everything that we've ever faced. The Bible says you wipe away every tear from their eyes and and uh, and, and, and and Jesus is going to win this. Mm. And so it's just momentary. But as we are going through this in a momentary way, we have the love of God. We have uh, Jesus Christ with us to walk us through each and every way. I would say the lie of the enemy is that you can sort it out on your own, but it's just a promise of the enemy that he never is not even able to deliver. It's only Jesus who can satisfy that need to see everything being sorted out and the pain going away. Do do you and people in your context have quite a eternal mindset? Do you think? Do you think? Do you talk about think about the new creation and life after death often? Well, in our African context. Um, the belief is that the spirit will never stop existing. The flesh can go. That's why it's easy to believe in ancestral worship because we believe the spirit of the person is hovering somewhere, whether in the homestead or whichever way. And so life after death is not an issue to believe. It's just the truth of where that spirit is, the reality of who. Uh, whether spirit is, whether it's rested, whether it's with God, etc. And uh, that's the way the, the difference is. And I suppose that's why it's easier for us in Zimbabwe, us in Africa to convert to God because it's easier to believe in a higher power. But sometimes it's easier to, it's harder or different to know whether it's the ancestors, whether it's other God or who exactly it is so what let me ask you a question then maybe a, a more of a personal one why do you believe and why do you bow the need to christ as chief of all spirits in africa what was it that convinced you and what are some of the, the things that you've seen god do in helping other people believe that all of the other spirits or gods are subject to christ 
uh, as Lord of all? What I'd just love to know about that. Yeah, so that's a very good question. And it's a question that Africa is asking at the moment to say, is Jesus Lord or God? Or is Jesus uh, an ancestor for other culture that came through colonialism or a dominant culture to impress their own God when we have our own gods who is with us? But I really believe what has happened is that God the Father sent his son, not a prophet, not anything else, but just sent his son, Jesus Christ, as we read. And, um, and there's so many evidences to show that Jesus is Son of God, just even looking at creation, how it came to be, and, um, and, and looking at God himself, just the message of the Bible, how it relates to how we live, the message of love, and just tracking it to the human heart, causes one to really believe that Jesus Christ is, is God. And I, be I bet it's belief, and I bet it's him speaking to you, he's speaking to our hearts himself. Uh, it may not be a mental thing. It may, it's, it, it's an encounter with him where you believe that for sure this is Jesus Christ who I can believe in. So there's a sense of the spirit impressing himself upon your spirit to convince and show you subjectively he's much more holy and sovereign and powerful than any other force or experience that you've had. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just beyond being told by anyone. It, it has to be real, that real relationship with him. Prayer is important, you hearing his voice. I think uh, uh, the Bible does say if we can't hear his voice, I mean, it will be, it's a challenge when you can't hear the voice of God. Mm -hmm. So it's an encounter. It's an encounter with him. It's the experience that you have, that you just know in your heart that mm -hmm. God has spoken to you. Which is something that we don't often talk, uh, talk about because we don't like to admit the fact that we're not actually in control of God. It sounds silly, but we're not actually responsible or we're not able to tell God what to do. And so I can, you know, if I can talk to my friend who's not a believer and I can impress upon him the gospel and want for him to come to faith. But the reality is he needs to have a, a spirit to spirit moment where where he becomes aware of the holy presence of God. And I'm not in control of that. <laughs> and so... Yeah. Uh, I, for all of my desire and all of my thinking, I got I can do this. We have to let God be God and let God be independent. I mean, it's Yahweh, isn't it? He's the eternal one. I am what I am. He's yeah. He is independent. He is completely free. That scares us uh, um, as human beings if we think about it properly because we realize God isn't under, he doesn't do our beck and call. He's not accountable to us. He is free. And actually, we need to realize that, which, which when we do, I think is liberating for us because you... You realize, oh, I'm not responsible for what God does. Yeah. My job is in prayer and in encouragement, yeah. but ultimately let God be God yeah. and he'll, he'll do as he pleases. Yeah, we, we can only do our parts. And just as much as each person is unique, like every person's fingerprint is unique, I think there is a certain talking of the Holy Spirit to an individual person that must happen for someone to, to convert to, to Christ. And if that doesn't happen, I mean, I, I, I just don't see how one would believe. Well, let's talk then about, let's come on to talk about some of the, the similarities and differences between the challenges of trying to pastor and establish churches in the West and where you are in Zimbabwe, because you, you touched earlier about um, what church is like outside of the city and how, you know, the rural areas feel very cross-cultural, even for a Zimbabwean, that they're very different mentality, very different and difficult ways of, um, trying to, different problems that you're trying to resolve and things that you're trying to pastoral issues that you're working through in the church perhaps will be different from some of us. Describe for us some of those differences. I mean, my opening comment would be Africa is very diverse. So a person who has never been to Africa might assume that what you see in an urban area and a rural area or a peri-urban area or where there's urban pro is the same. But it's very diverse. You may find someone who lives in an urban area going to a rural area and having culture shocks and vice versa. So there's diversity, diversity of language, probably 3,000 languages on, over the continent of Africa and um, many tribes. And each tribe might have different belief systems over a certain area of life, over funeral, death, marriage, 
um, cross-cultural relationships within tribes. So you, they can be fighting within tribes, etc., because Africa is very diverse. There's also that, so there's diversity over that tribes. There's also diversity of um, uh, economic or socio-economic uh, uh, places that people are in. So the people who are uh, with, who are wealthier and those who are poorer may have divides. They may even find it difficult for them to mix. So it's very complex, the continent of Africa. Languages, dialects within languages just makes it different. Um, so uh, you, and then also the way people are wired. So Africa, you might have some who are very oral and secular thinkers. So they may not need to be theologically convinced to make a con uh, uh, to make a decision. They may need to have an experience to make a, a, a decision and uh, to build their values in life. So all those things just makes it quite complex to work across the continent of Africa. But the thing is, even though there are, there are problems in, in diversity, you find that the major problem is believing Jesus Christ, whether Jesus Christ is Lord over everything else that stems between all those different cultures. And we can work through expressions of it, languages, different things, um, but there are things that are close to Jesus is Lord and the love of God and just the value of people mm. and worshipping God, yeah. So uh, is, um, I don't know, you know if religion is the right word here, but our beliefs about spiritual um, realities, are they quite localised as well and can be quite different? So spirits or perhaps because of what you said that when someone dies, their spirit stays within the, the locality or the homestead. Is it the case, therefore, that you have particular gods or spirits or aspects of ritual and devotion in one part of Zimbabwe, but then a few, you know, 100 miles down the other way can be very different? Because do, do people think in terms of spiritual boundaries is my question. Uh, because that's something that I think you see in the Old Testament, particularly the idea that the gods have their territory and the people within that territory are devoted to that God and another territory devoted to that God. And one of the, the main things that's different about Yahweh is that he doesn't respect those ter territorial boundaries. And in Christ saying, go into all the world, what he's really saying is I'm no respecter of boundaries either. I'm a God of, ac that crosses all boundaries. Is that a similar? In in many ways, in many ways, I, you, you probably have... Uh... A similar belief system across the continent, of, across the nation, uh, alluding to what you've just said, but you can have regional or localized belief system um, uh, run by maybe a prophet or a strong man. It can be across a mountain or it can be across a small piece of land that is revered as being sacred, maybe next to a river, maybe next to a mountain, or maybe granite somewhere where there's a granite rock or something that can be revered that it's got spiritual significance. And the strong man or the prophet or the witch doctor, whoever is around that area, can really uh, ask certain things uh, prophetically. I mean, I'm using my hands to, to try to depict that it's not true, but he may just feel certain things that this is what God is saying, God with a small g, Maybe he's asking us to go and uh, uh, do a vigil here, drink concussions to sort out our bad luck or things along those lines. So there would be different localized instructions uh, being given out to, to solve the issues. Payment done as well to the prophet and allegiance to that. There can be so many bad things that happen within that season. Do they have quite place, a lot yeah. of power over the people? They do, they do. They have a lot of power because they would be trusted. They would be trusted that what they are saying is next to God. So, and, and, and so there wouldn't be support for a relationship between God and man. The intermediary is the guy. Then he's the one who gives instructions of how it's done. And his instructions cannot be doubted, even if they would be asking them to do bad things mm -hmm. or immoral things or unethical things. Uh, the instruction of the Prophet would go beyond what is legal in a nation, what is ethical, 
because it's next to God. Mm. So, when, so when you're going into rural areas that are under the control of different witch doctors or, or, or prophets, um, do you often come up against a fair amount of hostility and, and pushback for control when you come with the message of Christ as being God over all gods? Yeah, definitely. They, that, that does happen. And some of these sects or cults, whatever you may want to call it, they can mimic the power of God. So they can mimic demonic possession and casting out of demons. They can mimic, they can mimic uh, what happened in the secret place. So they can, they can mimic the gift of the spirit. Let me put it that way. And so, to someone who is not strong in Christ, they can easily be swayed. And uh, you'd almost feel that when you come, you need to have signs and wonders and have God prove Himself over that. So some of those are some of the challenges that we face and you find that someone who's looking may say this prophet or this witch doctor has shown me power, has shown me a miracle or has prophesied and said things that I don't think you'd know. What can you say? And so that becomes the battleground that does happen. So we do pray for the gift of the Spirit. We do pray for God to show his power, for miracles to happen and uh, for God to intervene in his own way. Um, but we pray and God does intervene in his own way in different situations. Mm. Yeah. Talk to us about some of the, the church the church plants and church situations then in some of the rural areas. You describe um, some people having to uh, walk for hours to meet together or walk over 14 kilometers you described earlier just to go to church and meet together they don't they don't know what day of the week it is they don't have yeah. watches they don't really know if it's a sunday to meet so talk yeah. about how how do you do church in a setting like that and some of the challenges that they face yeah so some of those churches are referred to are in a place called kanyemba which is uh, north of zimbabwe churches that are planted out of uh one of uh dna churches called river of life westgate so very remote, uh, least rich area. Um, the uh, the dominant tribe there is the Doma people, and the word Doma it it means looking down upon. So it's a tribe that is not only looked down upon, but they also look down upon themselves, and uh, remote. And in a game park, so difficult to get there. And um, but we praise the Lord that there are churches that have been planted. I think now there are four and uh, different environment, no greater sense of time uh, and, uh, and walk long distances, but walk in groups because the game park and being careful about animals, attacks from elephants, possibly lions as well, and meeting under a tree, simple area, and the gospel is shared clearly uh, or simply in a way that they can understand in Shona. So that's one Kanyemba area that's happening and that God has opened in disciple nations. Mm. But the more, there's Mount Darwin, Dandi Valley, there's Dotito, there's Chiweshe, where the predominant cults, or we call them white garment churches, which I was describing earlier. And, uh, and that's quite dominant. They're scattered all over. If you were to put them all together into one grouping, they would form a significant number of uh, religious people in Zimbabwe by dominant the Chiweshi area. So those are the environments that Disciple Nations is working in. That's particularly in the north of the country. But that's also true in the southern part in Matland um, as we go into the rural areas as well. Um, yeah. How do, you, how do you appoint elders uh, um, over a community that's so dispersed like that and has to travel so long for so, such a long period of time? How do you create any level of pastoral connection um i guess i guess the culture is very different being a community focused um culture rather than individualistic but i'd love to know how you help establish a sense of togetherness and solidarity for these people who are so dispersed and travel to meet places yeah it's with great challenges i mean talking about dande or i would say kaitano area there are six churches there and four elders who who, who cover those churches and it just means that the elders have to uh, walk long distances, 14 k's to go and preach and come back and that's just the reality. Um, also need of raising leaders rapidly 
But in the rural areas, there's lots of movement because the younger generation, as soon as they find an opportunity to go to cities, they move. So you raise leaders, they move to, to cities, and then you raise more. You probably have older leaders who are really fathering those churches much more. Um, but that's, that's just the dynamic that's there. So great commitment from the leaders. I suppose we had to look at the kind of elder that is needed in that particular community. And as I was saying earlier, oral culture, um, secular thinker. Um, and so the, the, the thing is to uh, recognize that an elder in the rural area may look different from the elder who's in an urban area or in a Western context in just terms of how they articulate the gospel. Uh, but you do find in the rural areas how they present themselves, their lifestyle makes a big difference uh, because they can be able to stand to say, we stand for Jesus Christ, we won't do another ritual. So that is a big difference mm. that they make. Yeah. I can understand that. Mm. Almost like you said, that the, the, the reasoning style is less cerebral and more experiential yeah. like it, it 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 works for me i've lived it out i've experienced this i know this I, I i live like this and it gives you an insight into probably a culture that's much more like the the one that the new testament was written into yeah. you can see why there's a, such a great emphasis on lifestyle and character not just because it's important to have a godly character but because this is how people are going to decide if something's true or not is whether or not you're living it out which is different than in other contexts where well if you can stand up and give a good sermon and you sound very clever and you know you know the, you know the right stuff you know the right theology you can gain a hearing yeah. but in these contexts it sounds like you'll only gain a hearing if people have seen it in your life and yeah. can see see the difference that it makes yeah yeah and the style of preaching is different i mean it can be more story like you know parables like in the bible more story like and that makes uh, people really understand so you may not necessarily go through three points in your sermon because they are not linear thinkers, but they are secular. So it can be all over, but as long as there's a story that touches the heart. So the way an elder preaches, uh, apostolic authority can look and, and see whether it's in line with scripture, in line with doctrine, in line with, with whatever, but the way it's delivered and the way the elders is presented in different communities can be a lot more different. And that's important for us to understand because it will help us to raise leaders and appoint elders faster when they tick those boxes. Mm. Yeah. So, so what I think one of the one of the things that you see clearly in the New Testament is that the role of an elder is to preserve faithfully the doctrine as handed down to him, the apostolic doctrine, the message of the gospel. How do you train and make sure that elders have a good grasp of theology in a context like that where there's not necessarily going to be universities and books and libraries for people to go and read or classes people to sit through? What are some of your tools that you use most to help develop some of those leaders theologically? Yeah. We've had, uh, under Disciple Nations, we've had what you call the Reformation Boot Camp. So we have camps where these elders come and uh, we gather together and we discuss and work through doctrinal issues, but share it in a way that they can understand, in the language that they can understand, and really be able to share that. So each time we come and we gather and we look at it, and that has really helped to cement the doctrinal understanding. Um, because then again, even though they are oral cultures, or we are oral cultures and secular cultures, but it's important to really be able to understand the gospel and to really hold the truth of the Bible. I suppose, in addition to that, we there will always be uh, areas where we have to move out of our comfort zones. So even those that are in the secular linear cultures, there's sometimes moments where they really have to engage with the written word of God, to read it out, to understand what's being said. So that understanding and that shift is also important for the other culture to to to, to do that to to bring it all together so, so one of the, one of the things that the western church is really battling over or aware of one of the distinctions between christians in our culture and non-christians in our culture is our position on sexuality and traditional marriage but 
from talking to you, that's not the question people in your context are asking. Um, in, instead, you have a different problem, a different challenge. That when you go to these tribes and these places in rural settings, you're often um, having to deal with polygamy quite a lot. Is that right? Talk to us a bit about that as a reality, how that, what that looks like in African culture and life, the places you go, and then how you pastorally try to walk people through that. Yeah. So in an African context, pure, pure African context, um, polygamy is, is, is something that can happen. And um, there are contexts where it's even accepted or encouraged. There are contexts where it may not be accepted, encouraged, but it's done. It, it's like you can have multiple wives secretly. If you're not caught, you're okay. And in Zimbabwe, that is, is quite, uh, it's happening quite a lot at, the, at this moment. Uh, but in some of those churches, you do find, you go to a place and you find someone with three or four wives and they've been in that situation for a long time. They tend to Christ. Uh, but that can't be changed because you can't ask them to divorce now, three or the three or the four wives. It's just a reality that they live in the church. I mean, we follow what the Bible says to say they cannot be an elder, they can be in the church, um, but they cannot be they cannot be into leadership of, of, of the church or eldership of the church. And so those are some of the realities that we face. We don't have uh, big questions on sexuality like the ones that you currently have in the Western world. I think that generally there's an agreement of how to deal with that. But many multiple partners is, is, is a case that we have, yeah. I mean, people have said, don't they, in the West, that um, if you're going to change marriage to no longer be between just one man and one woman, the question is, well, why just one person? You know, there's no, um, there's no obvious instinct as to why a monogamous commitment to just one person is to be preferred to a polygamous commitment to multiple people. There are, you know, historic and traditional advantages to polygamy that's why i suppose it it was a useful system in a lot of parts of the world a lot of times in history i think that's a question that the west hasn't really answered you know why just one person why why not redefine marriage to be more than just one person so it's because of our christian heritage that we're quite we don't even think that's something that we need to think through and talk about um you mentioned a few times the need to raise up leaders and in Africa, in Zimbabwe at least, you said that the average, this is something, this is quite a startling statistic, the average age of people in Zimbabwe is 19. Yeah, the average, I would say in, in, in on the African context, it's 19. Is 19. 19. And the, and the average, average age, just for context, the average age of someone in the UK is 40. So it's, it's a much younger country. Absolutely. Why yeah. is that? And what implications and challenges does that create for the church? Yeah, high birth rates. I mean, it's a very young continent. High birth rates, um, lots of young people around, and uh, and I, yeah, that's just the reality. It's like it's like a, a big opportunity coming, and they begin to increase, and high population growth in Africa. They reckon uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, Africa may be the largest continent on the face of the world because of just these young people who are coming through. Wow. But having said that, you know, there's, um, there is little hope for what the continent can do into, Afri into, into the future. So just looking at the context of Zimbabwe, when they look at the opportunity for jobs, the opportunities for the infrastructure and all those sort of things, so you find that most of the young people are quite discouraged and despondent about the future. And I'm thinking maybe the best way is to move out of Africa, to come to Europe, uh, go to the US, and, and, and find better opportunities there. So secondly, young people are the majority, but they are not in the leadership. So the average age of political leaders in Africa, I'm not so sure what number that is, but it's high. You just look at the presidents or political ministers, people in high office, is just a, a, a higher age. So young people are just feeling that they have no opportunities for the future. They don't have a say for the future. They don't have the say for the present, but they are the majority. 
And so it just presents an opportunity for the church to move in and really raise leadership among young people to trust them again. I think when Jesus chose his disciples, I mean, it says they were, uh, history says they were very young. Some of them were teenagers or somewhere in the early 20s. So just to trust them, just to equip them, uh, help them to be productive and allow them to lead churches or to be in higher leadership of churches and um, to love them and give opportunities for them is the, is the opportunity that exists. What are some of the ways then that the churches try to include and disciple young people in churches so that they're not just you know, pushed out into children's ministry? What are some ways that you are trying to encourage and promote the next generation? Yeah, good question. So, Disciple Nations, we are I mean, one of our key impact areas out of the three that we have is raising the next generation. So, it's right front and center of what we do, not only the teens, but children. And prioritizing that in all our churches is the big encouragement that we're having. So it's not like we say, sometimes in the culture, children go away and the adults say, but we are making children the front and center of what we do. Profiling preachers from the younger generation, from the teens, from the 20s, and giving them, giving them platform to preach, giving them feedback, having to look at even allowing some to be ordained into eldership when the time is right, um, but really bringing them through to the leadership and the function and the operations of the church and making them front and center is the push there. Do you, do you find uh, one of the challenges we face in the, in the West, at least, is, is the, the relationship between the generations, the presence of children in church, people want it, but often you hear, particularly in more traditional churches, they want children in the service, but they don't like the mess and the noise that they bring. And so you have the older generation criticizing and getting frustrated with the younger generation. Um, is that the challenge that you face? What, how are, what's the presence of children? Like young, we, we released a podcast recently about the importance of um, discipling children rather than just a kind of late teens and giving them those opportunities. What's, what's the relationship like between the generations in the churches? And what are some of the ways that you're trying to take seriously the faith of very young children as well? Yeah, I think to be quite creative uh, with children in our churches, creating with games, creating and involving them, uh, I mean, creativity in games, creativity involving them and making it a lot fun. I mean, typically many churches, adults would pretty much say, children, go away and then we will stay in a very stable, clean, non-noisy, undistracted environment. But it's envisioning the churches, the elders, the leadership being really involved with children prioritizing them, letting them lead Sundays and just having a big focus mm. on children helps. And in our context in Africa, if you don't do that, it will catch up with us. I mean, we'll lose them. And so the focus really is on, on, on children. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so a different question almost entirely, but something I'm quite interested in, just as we're coming into land, if you like, what are some of the ways that you individually as a family look after your spiritual health? and things that we can learn from? Rest days. Rest days. We, the big risk for us is to just continue waking and waking and waking. Mm. Um, we, 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 typical person in Zimbabwe, typical person in Africa has a couple of side hustles because one job won't be able to take care of your needs. So that can cause you to work day and night, to work you to work Monday to Friday, Saturday, Sunday after church, and eventually just causes burnout, unhappiness, break up in marriages, and that sort of thing. We've really found that if you have what we call first rhythms or just rhythms that are in place, so I could just give you four. Uh, the first rhythm is just the first hour of the day just dedicated to start with Christ um, or then the next one is the first day of the week which is which can be a Sunday or whichever day you choose but just to ensure that you rest I mean, God rested God probably had 101 things to do 
maybe he didn't need to rest, I'm not sure. But I think he was in placing a principle that if we use, will become effective over time. So problems will remain, but rest must be done to have good quality time with the family. And I would also say the third is what we have as a family is first Fridays in a month, which we take as a day of fasting and prayer, just to pray and to be away or just to be, to just find time to, to get away from it all and just spend a day in prayer, just hearing God. Um, and the fourth is just what I would call first friends. Um, I mean, I come from a context where family is important, community is important, and our value can be derived in a community setting. So it's easy to be, to do things that you don't agree with so that you can please the community. But to just have good first friends, probably in the church, who you trust, who can really build your life and who you can great, get great advice and prayer from. And uh, even though I can be part of a family that I love and value, and I won't embarrass, but at least my principles are shaped by those who know Christ. Yeah. I love that. That's really helpful. So we're talking about four first principles for looking after spiritual health. The first hour of every day, the first day of the week, the first fr first Friday of the month, and the first friends. I, I love this. I've not heard this before, and I really want to hear more about this, particularly the first Friday of every month. So is this a discipline that's just you and your household or something that's shared across the church that you you take the first Friday of every month, particularly for prayer and fasting? Is that right? Tell me more about that. That's yeah, really so exciting. that really came from Global Disciples, the other organization that I'd worked from, where that's just been a principle. So it may be fasting and prayer. It may be just a time of... Um, uh, just time away, time of solitude, or just time where you just find your place and just spend time with God, no work, no what, and just yourself. And so that's been a very good principle of mine uh, that just makes sure that um, I have time with God. Um, I don't have pretty much, I try not to put too much of a formula on it to say exactly this is what's going to happen. Uh, because I really want it to remain open to but God. But it's, it's, it's something that's shared. It's the, it's the culture and the language of your community and church, is it, the first Friday? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I, am. Yeah. I love that. And your first friends, so do you, would you ask one another, you know, do you have your first friends or do you make sure you're spending time with people that are feeding you and doing your soul good? Is that language, again, that's part of the culture? culture? Yeah, it's part of the culture. I mean, people can put it in any way that they may find it helpful. Uh in, in, in DNA, we're calling that mentoring relationship, coaching relationship, your mentors, people who really come close to you, maybe eldership teams that you're part of, um, or life group members that you feel close to, people who you do alpha with, um, just that church community and people who are next to you, so that if you struggle, people will not say, no one ever knew that this what this guy was going through. Um, but just an encouragement to make sure that everyone has a group of people that they that checks up on them, that you can talk to, mm -hmm. and that you can be good friends with. I really like this, and I think the idea of having something that's just quite clear and neat in language to be able to talk about like that, the yeah. four principles or the four firsts, yeah. is something that, whether it's those four firsts or others or things, every church should have a, a clear language that its community understands. Yeah. We're concerned about your spiritual health, and it looks like looking after these four firsts. Yeah. That's really life-giving, I can imagine. Uh, well, I'd love, why don't you end by just praying for us? Um, can you pray in Shauna for us? Pray for us in Shauna, um, and the Holy Spirit will translate that and take that and apply it to our hearts. Thank you. Let's pray. Tidokutenda yangwari ninguwa etawana. Yukukurukura maendranone utunga miriri urumakereke. Tidokutenda yangwari nemakereke e new ground. Nibasa gurabaru kuita. Munyika muno nepano pasirose. Tidokutawala makumboro makuru kuta aramba aripavari. Wapeu chenjeri, wabatiri utaramba wachikura mamuri, wakuziwe suswa munoda. 
Tunona matamwari makereke ese inyo groundaru panopas. Ngasi mbe mamuri. Ngasi mudzirwe. Tunona matira munu wese arumuwa kereke wae. Watunga meriri wese. Warambi wachukutsirai. Wachitabasa renyu. Eh, Kutimura mchipiwa mbiri. Tunona matira zese izi. Nezi tarajeso kristo. Amen. Amen.